Sheet Sheets with the It's a Brain Thing podcast, and today I'm excited to bring you chapter four in our book club on Dr. Mona Della Hook's great book, Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges. I'm excited to bring you this chapter. Of course, it's been a long time, as you all know me. And one thing I I, I want to let you all know, especially since I'm in Oregon, yes, we've been having lots of fires, but I am okay. Thankfully, I did not have to evacuate my home, nor was I in particular danger of that. But we have had a lot of smoke, um, and it's been a very bizarre past several days due to there essentially, you know, not being any <laughs> blue skies or anything outside and, we, and not being able to leave the house and something I'm sure a lot of you can relate to, only it's not smoke keeping you in one place. It might be the demands of life, and, and sometimes that includes our children or our work or all the school that's going on at home. So we're, we're all still in this together, and I hope that as we continue through this book club, you will see the benefit of this book. I actually got an email you know, in a different context about this book that I wanted to address. Somebody was just uh, giving me a slight concern that this book is not related to FASD. You know, they they don't know if Dr. Delahook herself is aware of all of the, um, shall we say, the, the, the secrets of FASD or the how complicated it can be. I'm going to guess that she probably is not to the extent that a lot of us are, but that's true for the vast majority of professionals, right? Um, and I hope that, of course, by doing this podcast and, and by... Um, you know, getting this information out there that we will help professionals of all types uh, understand FASDs. And I said this at the very beginning of the book series. And anytime I really mention the book, which I have to say, I recommend this book to everybody. I, I really do believe Beyond Behaviors is the most important book that anybody right now who supports any child or who is interested in basic human behavior could read. And it's that's a big statement. <laughs> um, and, and even though the book is not FASD centered, it is absolutely applicable again because of this stress factor. I've even put in my slides and my trainings and stuff, even before applying cognitive supports, right, which is my model, the basics of this book is so essential before you start any kind of therapy or treatment or intervention. You, you have to go through some of these things if you're working with these kids who've been through this kind of stuff. And today's chapter, which is chapter four, um, and it's the first chapter of the second part of the book, which is about solutions, really goes into why this is. And, and that's the path forward. And people say, well, you know, what do we do? So if we're working with a kiddo who has had significant trauma um, and has any kind of developmental disability, including an FASD, you know, the four steps I say are you're going to start with connection. You're going to then go on to co-regulation. You're going to then move on to sensory supports. And then finally, you're going to move on to cognitive supports. Now, cognitive supports are vast. Really, you can start them right away. But the major focus for a child's team absolutely has to be on connection. And this has to do with safety in the brain, as we've been talking about through the first three chapters. And so, yes, the book is not FASD specific, but it is absolutely relevant. And, you know, if Dr. Delahook ever updates the book, I absolutely hope she'll include some stuff on FASDs. She might have done that intentionally. I don't know. Maybe I can interview her sometime and I can ask her about her personal FASD experience. I mean, that's the ultimate answer is I don't know. But it, to me, it doesn't matter because the, the book is still so essential. And so that and that's another reason why I wanted to, to go over the book here was to let you guys 
understand all of these chapters in an FASD context. Um, and so hopefully that, you know, these podcasts will be helpful for you to do that as well. So let's get started with chapter four. Just like all the chapters, this one starts off with a story to give us an example. And in this case, it is eight-year-old Mateo, who is an autistic child and who struggles with communicating. And he would, quote, habitually wander around his small special education classroom, incessantly touching the walls, and often his classmates as well, unquote. This kiddo, I mean, I've seen these kiddos. (laughs) He would try to get his aide's attention you know, his paraeducator, and she would slide her chair away, so he would be just a little bit out of reach. And, of course, this kind of thing doesn't typically work when the behavior is about something more than just wanting attention, right, or to mess around or whatever people's interpretations of these are as they're happening. Quote, he began to move his arms and torso more vigorously, leaning over and grabbing the arm of his aide, who then quietly asked him to pay attention to the teacher and moved behind him out of his view, unquote. And that's on page 95. And then, of course, in order to adapt to this, that his, his paraeducator being out of the view, he then leaned back in his chair and that caused him to fall down. And then he was sent to the, quote, calm down room. And Dr. Delahook says, quote, in that one exchange, I saw evidence of all three of the concerns described in chapter one about how our systems fall short in helping children with behavioral challenges. One, We fail to evaluate the underpinnings of behavioral challenges before we try to decrease them. Two, we don't put behaviors into the larger context of the child's social-emotional development. And three, we use a one-size-fits-all approach, unquote. And that's on page 96. And in this situation, the aide was doing the opposite of really what we know kids like this need, which is connection. And the focus on behavior, so the fact that he was touching people and compliance, the fact that he needs to stop right now when we say it, that's literally the opposite of what this kid needs. And so we have to stop being so obsessed with compliance, especially immediate compliance. Think about number one, what is the underpinning? What is the reason or one of the possible reasons for this supposed, quote, behavioral challenge? And the fact that often the adult and the system response and the behavioral response is exactly the opposite of really what these kids need. That's why Dr. Delahook and I and and many professionals who are understanding polyvagal theory and trauma were concerned about these kids. Because then the question is, let's think about Mateo. How many situations like that is he experiencing per week where he has a need He's trying to communicate this need, either consciously or unconsciously, and essentially he shut down because now's not the time to be doing this, right? You have to be paying attention to the teacher. How many times is this happening each week or each day? And then we think about year after year after year. This creates stress, and it's exactly the kind of stuff that we have to avoid. This is why it is important to push back against the systems who, despite all the accommodations they might make, are still ultimately sending kids into environments for hours per day under stress, under dysregulation, under sensory hell, right? We don't want to be doing this, especially in an ongoing fashion. It is very, very bad, and I've seen this through my 12 years of experience working with these kids. And it's this kind of thing, really, that has driven me crazy as a professional, right? The adults are wrong. 
We don't have an overall understanding of development and the brain and the adaptive reasons for why these behaviors are happening, and therefore we don't have a good understanding of how to address them. And of course, now that we are um, in COVID season, uh, which hopefully we will not be, and hopefully this podcast will not always have to address, um, so if you're listening in the future, hopefully your kiddo can be back in school safely, we have to think about the stress during COVID at home as well. What is more important, that our kid gets school done or that our kid is not under constant stress? And I think you all know what my answer to that question is. And it's the ongoing stress, even with little situation after little situation, that's what causes the stress and trauma and then displacement from these school settings. And we get moved from placement to placement and ultimately even more behaviors. It's the adult misunderstanding of what's going on and the adult impulse to immediately stop behaviors. And then if the kiddo doesn't immediately comply, the adult gets escalated and tries to handle things in a in-the-moment fashion, um, and we often do not do it very well. So what should the aid do instead? Well, the answer is going to be we need to stop and try to connect with Mateo. And This word connection, I'm just going to say again, this isn't a feel-good term that I'm using. I'm not that kind of person. You can ask anybody who knows me. I don't do platitudes. I don't do cliches. Connection is not an ideology, but it is what current research in neuroscience and trauma is showing us is needed for these kids, for all children, for all everybody. And Dr. Delahook says, quote, relationships and social engagement are key to helping children build behavior and emotional regulation control, unquote. And that's on page 96. She also quotes Dr. Stephen Porges, who was the one who created polyvagal theory, quote, to connect and to co-regulate with others is our biological imperative, unquote. And so connection is absolutely the first thing that we have to think about with these kids. And that's going to mean letting a lot of behaviors go. And are we okay with that? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Dr. Delahook then introduces us to this concept called personalized attunement, which is, quote, a way to tailor our interactions to meet each child's physical and emotional needs. We will learn how to use our knowledge of individual differences and how to leverage relationships and the environment in order to build a strong foundation for development, unquote. And that is absolutely uh, probably what you've heard from me before. Does that sound familiar, right? Um, This sounds a little bit like cognitive supports. And you can, in some ways, describe cognitive supports as hacking our own behavior or the environment to work for the person's brain. And with personalized attunement, Dr. Delahook gives us three steps that we can use to build these foundations. Prioritizing the child's feelings of safety in their relationships. Two, addressing the causes and triggers that are underlying and underpinning these behaviors. And three, helping the child develop new ways to cope. And this takes a long time for a lot of kids, especially because of the patterns of interaction and behaviors that have been going on for many years. And also what we know about their faulty neuroception, um, which is, again, their brain, not them, (laughs) but their brain misinterpreting cues in the environment as 
to think that there is something unsafe going on. And that shuts down their ability to, of course, feel safe, but then to connect and to learn. You cannot learn when your brain thinks you are unsafe. It cannot happen. And yet we demand children to continually do this day in and day out, especially at school, but even in our own homes, right? When, we, when we're misinterpreting a lot of these things that are going on. So again, we're starting with safety and relationship, and that naturally comes with adults adjusting expectations and being more proactive. Um, and this is good because as Dr. Delahook tells us, quote, once a child's relational safety needs are properly met, many behavioral challenges fade away naturally because the underlying reasons for the behaviors no longer exist, unquote. And that's on page 97. And that is absolutely true. When we start to not focus on the child and their behaviors and what they need to do, but rather on all of these other underlying things, and this can include sensory issues in the environment, but in this context, just the need to feel safe in relationships, a lot of behaviors go away. And that's completely different than what you're going to read in the vast majority of behavior plans that you get for your child or what a lot of professionals might recommend. Dr. Delahook talks a little bit about how she was taught, as many of us were, to focus on the behavior. And the focus on behavior was definitely what I also learned when I first started doing formal behavior assessments. And this is a problem in a lot of systems. And again, this is we're going to see this in schools, developmental disability systems, and in mental health systems. Um, we observe a behavior, we identify the supposed reasons, and then we, quote, prescribe a way <laughs> to reteach the behavior or to re- replace the behavior. But this process just simply doesn't take all that we know about the brain or trauma and especially neuroception. It just does not. If you happen to have a plan that does, that's going to be on the individual person who's doing the assessment and what their knowledge and their values are. And again, just the chances of, the, of this being in the context of a polyvagal theory or understanding of what's going on on this deeper level is pretty rare. Um, and this is from hundreds of families reaching out to me every year trying to find a way to get some support for their kid. And in Mateo's case, the behaviors were only observed at that surface level. So we remember that iceberg that Dr. Della Hook talked to us about in previous chapters. Quote, his attempts to touch the aid were not acting out behaviors, but rather reaching out behaviors, unquote. Right? Think about that. His attempts to touch his aid were not acting out behaviors, but rather reaching out behaviors. So we should always be asking ourselves, is my approach or is my interaction right now increasing the safety cues in the child or decreasing them? That's what we want to be asking. I mean, oftentimes with our tone, with how we're rushing things through, with our agenda that they immediately comply, we are doing literally the opposite of what they need in that moment. And I would hope that if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that, quote, safety is in the eye of the beholder, right? So this is not about what is actually safe. It's about the perception of safety, as Dr. Delahook says. And we know this can be skewed if the bottom brain regions in development encountered trauma or stress, which is applicable to the majority of people with FASDs. And we call the skewing of safety, right, where their brain is misunderstanding. That is what we call faulty neuroception. Now, I'm going to tell a story that happened to me um, probably just a little over a year ago by a couple of days, if I'm calculating correctly. I had essentially what one might call a nervous breakdown 
Um, and in the, in the weeks before that, um, I had a pretty intense situation and this is kind of going back to behaviorism and values and this idea of observing people. I do not necessarily think that observation of behaviors is the, is the be all end all, but that is definitely what behaviorism and assessment of behaviors is often focused on. You have to look at this behavior very carefully and try to get this. But really, even if I have never met a child, if I'm talking to their parents and they describe certain things to me, I can give parents whose children I have never met starting places and things to think about that they can use, right, without ever having met their child. And the whole thing is looking at behaviors on that surface level, like many behavior assessors do, it does not give them the knowledge of what is going on deep in the brain. You cannot necessarily see all of these things. And in most cases, you can't. And so I was working with a family and I was calling into a meeting with school where the teachers and the school district were all there because we were having ongoing issues um, essentially with this person's child, teenager really, uh, not feeling safe in the classroom and therefore not complying. And the teacher who was a PhD, had a PhD in, I'm assuming, special education or education, um, as soon as I got on, he immediately uh, went after my lack of credentials because as you all know, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm some dude who's really interested in the brain and I have most of my experience through practical experience. Um, and he also took issue with the fact that I had never met this child. I had only spoken with her mother and despite the fact that what I had been suggesting for mom at home was actually starting to work, and the whole reason for this meeting was trying to get some of those same supports to work at school. He took issue with that. It was something which ironically made me feel very unsafe because um, as most people who've been following me for a while or who are friends of mine know, I, I am very sensitive about the issue that I am you know, talking about the brain, <laughs> um, but I am self-taught. So it's, it's very important for me to be correct about things as a value and because I want to be taken seriously. And in that moment, right, I could not handle that. I was not in a place with my mental health. I did not feel safe on that neuroceptive level. And so I had to excuse myself. I said, this is an, I cannot attend this meeting. I'm not going to be able to support this team or something along those lines. And I got off because I was not able to uh, handle that feeling of lack of safety. And this man was really <laughs> saying out loud all of these thoughts that I have been, you know, thinking in my head, which are negative thoughts, you know, you shouldn't, you know, essentially you shouldn't be doing this. Um, you're an imposter, those kinds of things. You know, he wasn't saying it in those words, but it was bringing up faulty neuroception. I felt in that moment unsafe, even though I was totally fine. And I didn't have the words, especially with polyvagal theory, I wish I had, um, to, to kind of defend the fact that, yeah, we're here in this meeting, not because of me, but because you, the one with the doctorate in education, are not able to support this child. We're here because of you, dude. If I could go back, I would say it doesn't matter. None of this matters. If this teenager does not feel safe with you because of how you are approaching her and pressuring her, nothing's going to work. And that would be true on a neuroscientific polyvagal level. But this dude was old school, I could tell, and he just wanted her to comply. And when she wasn't complying, this was her problem. And a big part of this was me coming into the meeting with my own expectations, right? This is really the only negative experience with a school I've had recently. Most of the time when I attend school meetings, 
they're absolutely open, right? Because I explained the logic of what we're talking about and the logic makes sense. And so therefore we start to brainstorm together and those things make sense. Um, But we couldn't even get there with this particular team because the adult in the situation and the other adults who were letting him run the show for some reason, even though his boss was there, um, they were not thinking about the child first, right? They were not thinking about what has this girl been through, which was a lot, And how do we need to change in order for her to feel safe in our institution? Um, That was not the priority. And for days after, I literally probably had two days of significant depression because this was um, a big deal for me to have somebody actually say these negative things that I have been fighting off in my own brain for a long time. It's just, it's not something I really had encountered before. And I'm thinking if an adult like that can make me feel unsafe just in this quick moment. We literally interacted for less than five minutes before I had to leave. What about this child who's going into his classroom and he's supposedly telling us all these supports he's putting in place? I don't trust that for a second. And I don't trust that he's using a gentle tone of voice because if he's making me an adult feel this unsafe, how much less unsafe is he making this teenager? We already know the answer based upon the behaviors in the classroom. And a lot of people struggle with this idea that the kiddo is not unsafe, right? But it's not about whether or not the child is actually unsafe. It is whether or not they perceive themselves as being safe and not their conscious self, not the executive functioning. They're not going to say, I feel unsafe. It is parts of their brain that they have no control over. So it's about their brain's perception. And so we have to maybe adjust to that even extra so that way they can feel that safety. And this is why it's important to figure out what our child individually looks like when they're on the red and the blue pathway, which we've discussed. And Dr. Delahook, thankfully, includes a couple of worksheets. And you're going to find those in the book on pages 99 through 100. And I have families that I'm working with right now work through these pathways And when I give them a plan, I give them a uh, tracking sheet. So for two weeks, we're not going to track behaviors. We're not going to track anything except for pathways. And that's going to be before I implement other uh, behavior tracking systems. Because I want to make sure that the adults in the situation are actually thinking in these terms. Because just being told this, you know, the first time. It doesn't make it click in our brains necessarily very easily. So having these forms can help us focus on that. And adults in our children's lives need to understand how they and us, really, they they can move from one pathway to another. So the green pathway, which is when we can socially connect, which is when we feel safe, which is when we can learn. Um, The blue pathway, which is, to put it simply, the freeze mode. Or the red pathway, which, to put it simply, is fight or flight. And they can move from one pathway to another and why this is happening and what the first remedy must be. And that is to increase relationship safety cues. And this can be difficult in a lot of situations, such as school. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of practical things to think out. It takes actual thought out work. It takes actual tracking and effort from the adults. But until we do it, we're continuing to send our child into unsafe and overstimulating and stressful hells each day, each day that they go to school or each day that they struggle at school, even if it's not day after day. But once we have the adults understand and start to implement these concepts, we usually start to see success. Recently, I asked a staff member at one school to make a routine, so not off the cuff, but have it in the routine 
of going for a walk and connecting with the child each day, focusing on the relationship. And again, when I'm when I'm suggesting things in the moment like this, I am not necessarily sure that it's going to actually work. I'm never sure if the adult will actually do it, especially if they're a skeptical adult. And I am not sure that it will actually work. But when I have done this and the adults have bought in, things often improve. As I'm, I am often very surprised, even myself, knowing these concepts at how much things can absolutely improve. Does it make things perfect? No. Kids that have FASDs, for example, they're still going to be impulsive when they're feeling unsafe. Um, and so the relationship building that we're doing here allows us to then intervene and respond and redirect, but under an established sense of safety. That's the goal. And so at first, this can look like a tantrum decreasing, uh, maybe not completely. Um, maybe it is not so intense, but just less intense. And then they recover. People may wonder how us focusing less on the child and more on how the adults are interacting. So to increase these relational cues, how does this help the child develop coping skills? Well, by establishing a sense of safety, we can then help their brain under a certain small level of stress actually be successful. But for a lot of these kids, they can't handle any tiny amount of stress before significant behaviors occur because they they go directly to the red pathway or maybe the blue pathway. And so she talks a little bit about manageable stress. And, and I, I, I'm even hesitating to talk about how we can learn with a little bit of stress right now because sometimes people focus on that. They The, the focus is on how do we help the child to build the goals. And so I worry that even by mentioning this, people will try to simulate this right away, even though this is not the beginning place. Finding stress that a child can handle is not going to be your starting place. First, we have to establish that safety. But when we're playing with children, for example, even playing something like hide and seek, there's a there's a stress to that, but it can be fun. And if we're if we if they feel safe and we're having fun, it's during that stress that they can perform and see some success and build up some of that tolerance skill. Or when we're playing make-believe, right? We can have quote-unquote stressful situations happen there that then we problem-solve together. But this is done in the context of relationship and co-regulation and helping them establish that they are safe even though there's this slight amount of stress going on. When we can get to a place where there is a little bit of stress and we help the child manage it, either through you know a fun simulation, through playing, or through just because we've had that success, now there's actually something going on. And, and we, we want to work with the kiddo during this time. Um, and we maybe we make a plan, maybe we practice, which is a big part of cognitive supports ahead of time. So we're trying to set them up for success as much as we can proactively. And then the stressor happens. And if they have the skills and we were proactive enough and they're feeling safe and we're helping them co-regulate, then they can be successful. And that is a tiny step forward and continuing to build up the stress tolerance. And Dr. Delahook mentions a critical phrase when we're, when we're helping children do this. It's called co-regulation. And co-regulation, you might recall when I'm looking at the big picture for kids who are dysregulated, the first is connection. The second I said is co-regulation. That's what we're talking about now. So once we've established our relationship and the safety of that relationship, now when there are little stressors going on, we can start to actually help the child 
co-regulate because instead of us being part of the lack of safety, now there might be a lack of safety going on or a perceived lack of safety, but you, the adult, are not a part of that. You are, from this child's brain perspective, a safety part of that. And so they will hopefully come to you or listen to your strategies um, or, or suggestions or, or you know hug you or whatever they need in that moment to regulate their brain and their body. And so what's really, really important, especially when we remember that we have to focus on the adults of the situation, is to think about which pathway am I on? And so that's what Dr. Delahook gives us on page 109. It's a worksheet for you as a person to think about which pathway you're on. If you are escalated, if you are ultra stressed, if you are impatient, if you have the slightest tone of irritation, this can trigger faulty neuroception. And this can be dangerous, right? When we're trying to establish safety and then we, the adults, regress and we go back to these old patterns of behavior, that can immediately put the kiddo back on a negative pathway, which is exactly what we're trying to avoid. And so every adult in this child's life has to be thinking about this. This does not work when only one parent is doing this, but the other parent is not. Or when we're doing this at home, but then we have people at school not doing the same thing, ultimately because they have a different interpretation or they don't have the knowledge or the skills. Part of the IEP plan, part of the treatment plan needs to be the adults working with this child, understanding what pathway do they go on, especially if there's a, quote, challenging behavior happening. And this is where we need to develop our own coping skills. What can we do to calm down our own brains and our own body when we find ourselves going on the pathways? And there's a lot of different things that we can do. You, you Hopefully you know some of your skills, but the first thing you have to do, as Dr. Delahook tells us, is to stop. You cannot use a coping skill as you are yelling at your child or as you are working yourself up on the red pathway. You have to stop and think like we're always encouraging our children to do. Recognize what's going on in your body and in your brain and the emotion and then use one of your coping skills. Because, quote, if we are not calm and alert, we are not in a place to act thoughtfully and help the child, unquote. We know this is true, right? You know (laughs) that if you are upset, you are not helping your child in that moment. And a lot of us have been through trauma, even with our own kids. If you have faulty neuroception because your kid is showing the slightest bit of irritation and you're worried, oh gosh, here we go again, another crisis, another emergency, and you're allowing that to escalate you, even though your kiddo might just be showing small signs, you're ironically doing exactly what our kids do, and it's something you have to recognize within yourself. And this is going to be true for all parents. There's not going to be a parent uh, who this just doesn't apply to. We all have to take the time to think about it. So if somebody's not willing to do that or they're not bought in, we can expect them to be a hindrance to this process. And also, Dr. Delahook reminds us on page 110, quote, if we can offer ourselves grace and acknowledge the full range of human feelings, negative and positive, then everybody benefits. As we continue to think about our own responses and our own brains and our own bodies in these terms, it actually provides practical opportunities. I've suggested to parents, first of all, you know, when we're, when we're if we have a kiddo who is starting and developmentally ready to work with us and to understand this, 
we don't want to focus on emotions. We want to focus on their body. How is your body feeling in these moments, right? And so before you even get there, you as the parent, maybe you're having a conversation at dinner, you know, a normal conversation, and you're relaying a situation that you've been through that was emotional. You can then say, you know, and when I get angry, I feel that in my face, Or when I get scared, I feel it in my stomach or in my legs, whatever it is for you, because, of course, it's going to be individualized. And you don't even have to then ask the kid anything. You're just making this language and this thought process a natural part of processing emotions out loud, for example. And you're planting these seeds to then eventually work with the child on identifying what's going on in their body. And this is more than just hiding symptoms of your anger. you know, you're suppressing those emotions, which is usually not very effective and it will drain your executive functioning fuel. You have to regulate yourself. As Dr. Delahook says on page 111, quote, pretending to be just fine when you're really not can confuse a child and provide mixed messages about safety and relationships and how much a child can trust you to help her feel better, unquote. And with that thought, Dr. Delahook provides some worksheets for us on pages 112 and 113 that will help you identify what happens on the surface when you're struggling and what are the things that might be leading to it underneath the iceberg. Um, And there's a worksheet called Self-Assessment and Self-Awareness, Staying Calm in Adults, where you can consider your own triggers and then think about what it is that's causing you to do that. And what are some supports you can make for yourself that you can then use to regulate and then help your child co-regulate in those situations? So in terms of what we can do to calm down those practical supports, Dr. Delahook gives us a bunch of examples, uh, mindful awareness, breathing. A lot of these things are very important for us to at least try. So if you read this and you're like, breathing doesn't work for me, I I really want you to think about it and try it differently because now you have a different set of knowledge, right? And even that, in some situations, uh, it can, can help trick the brain into working. One thing I read about recently in order to prevent the blue pathway, which I've never really thought of myself as going on often, but I'm now reconsidering that. I, I, especially lately, (laughs) when I go through either a lot of hard work or an emotional situation, I feel very, very tired. And And some days I have to go lay down like six different times throughout the day. And I read about one potential strategy, which is where you breathe out and it's related to chanting. And you make the sound voo, V-O-O-O-O, and, um, but you do it low. And so you think of it as a foghorn. And so you, you breathe in naturally, but then on the breath out, you go, And theoretically, this stimulates uh, various nerves in our stomachs, which can help with the blue pathway. For me, this has been working. I will do a few of those and I will feel the ability to reinitiate, which is an executive functioning skill to start a different set of processes. And again, I'm not going to say that this is going to work for everybody or that it's going to always work. But before I would have just dismissed that out of hand saying this isn't going to work. But with the knowledge of why this strategy might help, it is helping me move through periods where I'm my brain is tempted to shut down and go lay down. But I'll just pause. I'll do this. 
and I've been able to go so far each time. Of course, when we're escalated, things can, I think, in my opinion anyway, get a little bit more complicated, and those strategies will will have to vary, and we're going to have to continue to think about it. But that's breathing is very, very important, if not just to stop us for a second and help our minds remember what is happening, what what's going on in my body, and how can I respond right now. On page 116, Dr. Delahook has an exercise called Affectionate Breathing, and it comes from a book called The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, which um, after I read this, I actually purchased and I've started to go through and whoo, man, it can bring up some stuff from the past, right? And I have also found a lot of helpful things there. In particular for me, the idea of self-compassion for somebody like me who's black and white, scientific-minded, it can sound kind of wooey. And I'm not into woo. But they're based on psychological and neuroscience uh, topics and polyvagal theory. And one thing I've started doing when I'm worked up is I put my hand on my chest and just breathe. And the hand on the chest being something comforting and focusing on allowing myself to be okay with the emotion and giving myself compassion. Because for me, and I'm not trying to extrapolate this to the whole population at all, but for me and for probably a lot of people, part of what's going on is the anger at myself for not being able to calm down or for not being able to sit and focus or for whatever I'm failing at. That's a big part of executive dysfunction, which um, I have through ADHD, uh, quote unquote ADHD, and what people with FASDs will almost certainly have is that executive dysfunction. And over time, you begin to beat yourself up and it can get very, very, very difficult. So that's just an example of one of the many things that the uh, Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook can walk you through. So if you are somebody who gets angry at yourself, I definitely recommend picking up that workbook as well. On page 118, Dr. Delahook gives us this idea of thinking about connections. And I'm going to just read the exercise and the questions just so you can get an idea of what this is. And I, I really want to encourage you, if your first thought is to hear this and be like, that sounds stupid, um, maybe you should give it a try anyway, right? And, and t- to take it seriously and just try it. That's really what, I, you know, do it as an experiment. See if it does anything for you. This is all quoting her. Find a quiet place, sit still, and close your eyes. Think of a person in your life, from the past or present, who has made you feel safe, loved, and secure. Imagine the person's face and voice, and picture the soothing qualities this person embodies. If you can't think of someone who has offered this to you, then use your imagination to envision a loving and wise person with these qualities. Take some time to focus on that image and those qualities, and then open your eyes. And then the questions that she will ask you that you will then write down on the worksheet is what feelings emerged as you did the exercise? What words or images come to mind as you thought about the interaction with the person? And what kind of things did the person say or do that made you feel safe, loved and secure? Again, this is an example of if we were to give this worksheet to one of our kids, this would not work because this worksheet demands a certain level of development and a certain amount of cognitive skills to be able to read and then actually do the exercise and then to reflect back accurately on these questions, right? It's an advanced cognitive way of thinking about things. Um, so that's, I just want to reemphasize this is for us to do for ourselves, not for us to sit down and do with our kids. 
And what are what is the point of these exercises? Well, Dr. Delahook tells us it's to quote foster your ability to make yourself available to the children with whom you work or for whom you care. In other words, they are strategies that you can use to find the green pathway of calm. Just as it is important for children to build their house of social-emotional development, it is equally important for adults to track their own emotional reactions to ensure that they can serve as therapeutic agents for their child. And that's absolutely true. And I tell people, I tell parents, and I tell audiences when I'm training, we struggle with the exact same things our kids struggle with. Only we're the adults snapping at them, and we don't have somebody right behind us correcting us, right? We need to remember that our children have fewer skills than we do, presumably. And so we can't expect them to do things that we ourselves cannot even do. So we really have to make sure that we are aware of what's going on in our own brains and body. And really, and I have to tell you all, reading this book has made me very much aware of how not in tune with my body I am, right? If you would have asked me, you know, a year ago, are you in tune with your body? I would have said yes. Um, but as I am doing a lot of these exercises and, and doing other things, I'm realizing I am not particularly in tune with my body. This is not necessarily the case for all of you. Um, but don't if, if you think that you are just intuitively um, there, maybe consider that you're not. Then on pages 120 through 124, Dr. Delahook takes us through the steps of social emotional development. But for the adult us, you know, caring for the child rather than the child. And so you can do those and begin to find maybe some gaps in your own emotional development and things that you can focus on and improve on. And all of this is leading again to this idea of co-regulation. On page 125, Dr. Delahook tells us, This emotional model begins with emotional co-regulation between the child and us, the parent, teacher, professional, or caregiver. It puts relationships at the center where they should be. She then gives examples of why children need co-regulation and then some stories of how co-regulation can happen practically depending on the child. She walks us through the ideas of cues, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. You know, how you're saying something is just as important as the words you're saying. And so when a child has a big reaction or they have a misperception, you're yelling at me. Our intuitive response is often to correct that misperception, but that's not necessarily what we should do. We have to realize that their brain is perceiving something, and that reaction we shouldn't take at face value. We shouldn't assume there's a con or you know the, the child's lying to us. It could very well be that the slight intensity that they're picking up on that we're not even aware of, right? Or maybe a look in our eyes or maybe something completely unrelated is feeding into this feeling, lack of safety and a misperception of potentially what you're doing. And Dr. Delahook ends the chapter just by helping us think about certain cues that can make things more difficult and stop that connection and how us using top-down solutions, right? The idea of trying to talk to the person, um, or assuming that their upper brain, their executive functioning, can take care of these lower brain things that are going on in terms of lack of safety, how that's not going to actually help. And in fact, can actually make things even worse. And how by focusing on just the behavior and managing the behavior can absolutely make things worse because it's the wrong place that we should be starting off with. We have to focus on connection and our relationship and co-regulation. And so I'm going to read from length just kind of the final story with Mateo and what happened there. 
The first step was for the adults who worked with Mateo to begin paying attention to his behaviors instead of ignoring them. His aide learned that when Mateo began moving his body in certain ways or glanced in her direction, he wasn't trying to be disruptive or merely seeking attention. He was signaling the need for reassurance. With this new understanding, the aide began to pay attention and instead of reacting by moving away, she leaned in. As it turned out, this approach was much better for the aide, a highly relational person who had never been comfortable with the IEP plan, which dictated that she ignore his behaviors. Over time, using her natural inclinations to soothe the child, she was able to help Mateo feel safer in his body and mind as she helped him tolerate manageable doses of stress, allowing him to become more engaged in the classroom. As the other adults around him focused on emotional co-regulation, Mateo began to be more trusting. With his consistent emotional backing, he began to communicate more, first with gestures, then with signs, and eventually with a tablet computer. Now the useful techniques offered by his behavior team, breaking down tasks into smaller steps, predicting and developing routines, using visual schedules and more, all gained synergy as he stepped into a whole new world of learning and management. So again, you know, we're, we're, we're with the best of intentions, we're trying a lot of things. She just listed some of them. Breaking things down, that's a common one. Modifying workload, that's a common one on IEPs. All of those will not have the effect we want until the child can feel safe in their brain and their body um, in whatever setting they are. And so as we end chapter four, I want you to think about what Dr. Delahook is encouraging us to do, which is to promote connection and safety and that's going to start with understanding how we ourselves are responding to these stressors, right? And not just the stressors of our related to our child, but stresses in general. Are you a reactive person? I know I am. It can be very, very difficult for me in the moment to not be reactive if somebody's doing something that irritates me. Yet, if I'm trying to establish safety and connection with the person who's doing that, I have to develop these strategies. And the resources in Beyond Behaviors are a great way for me to think about that with the worksheets and with the questions that Dr. Delahook asks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the It's a Brain Thing podcast. We're going to continue next time with chapter five of Dr. Delahook's book, Beyond Behaviors. You may have heard that I am starting an online community for parents and caregivers of people with FASDs called the Brain Thing Support Community. You can find more information about that at www.cognitivesupports.com community. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you all again soon.